All right, welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. It is great to see you guys. We are back after a few week hiatus. Um, I'm back from Boston. Um, I was very tempted. I don't know why, but I was very tempted to buy like a Boston cap, like with a B on it. I'm like, oh, this looks very cool. And Leah's like, why would you buy a Boston cap? Like you live in Atlanta. <laughs> buy an Atlanta cap when you come back. And I thought that was wise advice. I don't know why I mentioned that off the top, but it just came to mind. But now that I'm back in Atlanta with my Atlanta, with my A cap. So we're going to bring the A game today for Kabbalah. That's the plan. And today the topic is perfectly imperfect, but I want to begin with a question. And then I want to question the question. You guys ready? What's the question and what's the question of the question? So the question is, and this is a question that many people have asked over many years, over the centuries, over the millennia. The question is, why are we here? Right? People have asked that question from time immemorial. Why are we here? Why are we here? It's a philosophical question, a, a, a spiritual question, a religious question. Why are we here? <clears throat> However, I would like to ask a question on the question. We've been here for so long, right? People, where else do you think we should be? Right? Why are we here? Where else do you want to be? You understand the question? Mm-hmm. On the question. So the question is, why are we here? What's the purpose? Why are we here? Why are we here? We're here because we've been here for thousands and thousands of years. Where else should we be? You have an alternative? Like where, where else should we be? So in truth, it's a good question. Not just the question on the question, but the question itself. Why do I say that? Because the question, why are we here, is driven by a sense that we have, an innate sense, that we don't belong here. There's an innate sense inside that you and I actually don't belong here. Where else do we belong? We sense this. We sense that we don't belong here because there's a piece of us that is not from this planet. Don't tell anybody I said this. You know, like Superman comes from another planet. Where does he come from? Crypt- Krypton. Krypton? Krypton? Kryptonite? Is this Kryptonite? Yes. Wow. Talk about a guy who doesn't like going home. <laughs> the rock from his own planet is his nemesis? How? Oh, it makes him human. How counterintuitive. Interesting. Anyway, back to the story. I'm not going to try to... Uh, illustrate the holes in the whole context and the whole concept of Superman. That's for another class. But what I do want to say is that like Superman, you and I really originate from another reality. Kabbalah teaches, Jewish spiritual thought teaches the following, that you and I possess a soul. And the soul is a piece of God that comes from another reality. In the language of the mystics, the soul is hewn. Like when you hew a stone, you cut it out from, uh, from the quarry. The soul is hewn from the source, from the divine source, divine majestic source. The soul is hewn from the source and then sent low, low, low into this world, into this body, into this, into this reality. The soul does not come from here. The body comes from here, right? As the verse in Genesis says, that God took the earth, right? Formed Adam and then blew into his nostrils the breath of life. Nishmat 
Chayim, the soul of life. The soul of life is God's. The body is the earth's. The human being is a dual reality, is a dual being. A body that is of the earth and a spirit that is from heaven. So the body belongs here. The soul does not belong here yet. And it goes back. Right after body and soul uncouple, right, birth is the coupling of the body and soul. When the uncoupling happens, so each goes back to their respective place. The soul goes back to its spiritual source. The body goes back to its physical space. Hence the, the Jewish mitzvah of burial, to return the body to the earth from whence it, it originates. And that's, hey Jeff, and that is, that is no worries. And that is the, um, that is the, uh, the, the, the physical life cycle as it were. But the idea that I want to focus on today is about the soul. The soul comes from, it doesn't only come from heaven. The soul in the language of Kabbalah is a piece of God. Now, what we're dissecting God, how does that, a piece of God? That's the language that the mystics use. That the soul, the human soul, the divine soul within each of us is a piece of God. In fact, when the author of the founder of the Chabad's Hasidic movement wrote his seminal work, the Tanya, in 1798, um, the Bible of Chabad Hasidic philosophy, he uses this expression. This, the soul, the divine soul, is chelek eloka mimal mamish, which translates to a piece of God above, and then he uses the word mamish. Mamish means mamash. For real. For real. Literally. Tangibly. Count on it. It's legit. It's literally, not figuratively a piece of God piece of God. It's literally a piece of God. And again, it's not literally, God is not literally a physical substance that can be cut into pieces. But however God is, the soul is a piece of God. Right? We don't want to concretize God's image either. That would be blasphemous. So God is beyond image. The soul is a piece of God. We know this from the Torah itself, right? The Bible says, God said, let us create man in our image after our likeness. No, God doesn't look, God doesn't have a body. So what is the image that we are created after? It's the soul. The soul is created in the image of God, but more than the image of God, the soul is actually a piece of God. And so the mystics ask the following question. How does it make sense that God takes a soul and then banishes, sends it, so low into this reality, into this corporeal reality, this physical, material reality, this world that is often so opaque to the truth. When I say opaque, I mean it's so hard to see the truth. We look around and what do we see? We see stuff, we see people, we see things, we see materialism, we see greed, we see narcissism. We see jealousy, we see anger, we see pride, we see all of the ugly things around us, and we see beautiful things as well. But how does, this, how does God, why does God take the soul, a pure piece of His essence, and send it down into this lowly space? Who would do such a thing? Take, right, take, a, take such a beautiful, a beautiful thing and put it in such an ugly place? 
Why? And then not only is a soul in this world, it's in a body. And has to contend with all of our bodily stuff. All, all, all of that stuff on, on the inside. In other words, aside from the external distractions to the truth, you have the internal distractions to the truth. God puts the soul into a body that is so frail. You know, one of the reasons why we fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is to remind ourselves just how frail we are. Right? It's a 24, 25, 26-hour fast. Depends who's counting, right? But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a full fast. No eating or drinking. And, you know, it's, and, and often people ask, well, I, I feel like I would pray better if I could at least eat something, right? Give me something to eat or drink. And Rabbi, I promise you, I will pray better. I'll be able to focus better. The Alter Rebbe agreed with that. Was it the Alter Rebbe or the Friedeke Rebbe? About what, eating before the Avenue? Yeah. Yeah, but that's... The order that was... Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but, that's, but that was on a regular day. But I'm talking about Yom Kippur. Which Rebbe was that, though? That was... One, no, one of the early ones. Look at the Tema Tzedek. Um, but here's the idea. Why in Yom Kippur do we fast? If perhaps food and drink, even a little bit, could help us, you know, be stronger. One of the reasons... I mean, simple answer is there's a biblical... It says it's a day of affliction. So that means, amongst other things, fasting. But aside from that, on a, on a psychological level, on a spiritual psychological level, fasting reminds us just how frail the body is. You withheld food and water for what? 10 hours? 12? Where are you breaking down? 12 hours in? And already you're... You, you, and I'm not... Again, this is, we're all in the same boat. This is, not, I'm not, this is not a pointing finger thing. Right? This is all of us. Like, I haven't eaten or drinking for 12 hours, and I'm already, like, losing myself... That's how frail I am, and that's what I run after all, all the whole year, placating this part of me that is so frail that withheld from food or water for a little bit, I already go bananas inside? Come on. There's got to be a deeper truth to, to this. My point is, this, the, the soul, a piece of God, has to contend not just with, use a Yiddish word, mishagasin. How do you translate mishagasin? Yes. Craziness of this world, but also the Mishagasin of the body. <laughs> it's like, oh, I need this, I need that, I need the other. It's like, come on. Really? After 120 years, right? Where's the body? Right? After 120 years, where's the body? That's what we're running, that's what we're running after, running after the body. So, so the idea here is that the soul really has a lot to contend with. And the soul is put in a very difficult spot. It's put into a body that has its severe limitations and it's, it, it provides a, a very, um, to a large extent, it's the foil, right? Not the aluminum foil, but it's the foil of the soul. It's put into a body in this world. This world stands in opposition, in many cases, fundamental opposition, to, um, to what the soul stands for and desires. And that is, uh, and that is the, the station of the soul for, the, for its duration on earth. And the question that the mystics ask is, why would God do that to the soul? Simple question. Why would, or to himself, however you want to phrase the question, why would God do that? Who does that? Who takes a pure, beautiful, innocent, spiritual, godly being and, and puts it into such a spiritually, spiritual wasteland? Who does that? Why? Why would you do that? 
So I want to share with you two answers. There are many answers that are given to this question, as you can imagine. I want to share with you two specific answers that are brought in the mystical tradition. Answer number one. These are not the only two, but these are the two we're going to focus on today. Answer number one is that this experience for the soul, the soul coming down into the body, into this world, etc., contending with all of the opposition, contending with all of the forces that oppose everything it stands for, all of this is in order to build resilience within the soul. How does one, in general, how does one build resilience, get stronger through, help me out here, through resistance, through the opposite, right? If you want to become stronger, you lift weights, right? Resistance. Resistance builds strength. It also builds resilience, right? No one asks for difficult moments, but when we encounter difficult moments and we overcome them, we become stronger, we become resilient. That is the definition of resilience. So the soul above is in a perfect state. No challenge. There are no challenges in heaven. By definition, that is, that is the, the nature of the space. When the soul comes below into a body that has its own agenda, into a world that looks at the soul and says, are you crazy? You want to do that? Come over here. Join the dark side. Right When the soul comes into this space and is still able to maintain, to fight tooth and nail for its existence and its integrity and survives the challenge, it's stronger, it's resilient, and it grows through that experience. Make sense? Reminds me of a story that I love telling. And I'm sure many of you have heard the story before, maybe even heard me tell it before, but it's, it, it fits right here. The story of a fellow who lived in a small town back in the day, lived in the shtetl, small village, and he always struggled to make a living. And he tried so many different things, and everything he tried, it was, it was met with, uh, with challenge, and, and he was never really successful. So one day... He hears about a far-off island called Diamond Island. And the rumor that he hears, you know, when you hang around the synagogue, you hear rumors. It's like, it's like Psh, have you heard about Diamond Island? Diamond Island, what's Diamond Island? Apparently, there's this island. Just sat, sit right back and we'll tell I don't know the words, right? Something like that. The Bermuda Triangle? Gilligan's. Whatever happened to the Bermuda Triangle? I feel like Bermuda Triangle and quicksand were big things when I was a kid. Those quicksand and Bermuda Bermuda Triangle. Those were like the, those were certain from the Tarzan movies. I don't know. It was the, it was certain demise, certain doom, and I don't know. No one ever talks about it anymore. Quicksand. I don't know. Oh, it's the new black hole? I guess. I don't know. Anyway, back to the story. So he hears about this place called Diamond Island. Diamond Island, if you go to Diamond Island, the place is filled with diamonds. Become rich. Easy. Go to Diamond Island. Become rich. Step one, go to Diamond Island. Step two, get rich. Simple as that. So he tells his wife, I'm going to Diamond Island. She says, you're Meshuga. He says, I know, but I'm doing it anyway. Let's, let's go. I'm doing it. Not let's go. I'm going to go. So he leaves his wife. He leaves his kids. He scrapes together money. He borrows money, whatever it is. And he sets sail 
for Diamond Island. After a voyage, he arrives on Diamond Island. They disembark from the ship, and he looks down, and the sand is glistening. It's beautiful. He's never seen such shiny sand. He bends down to the sand. He grabs some of the sand. It's diamonds. It's not even sand. The whole place. I know, his feet, whatever. Fine. The whole place is littered with diamonds everywhere. What's better? Cut or not cut? I don't know either. All right, whatever it is. Diamonds everywhere. Diamonds for days. He can't believe his fortune. You know, you hear rumors. Rarely ever do rumors play out exactly the way you, you, would, you would dream. This is exactly his dream. He's on Diamond Island, and he is now fabulously wealthy. He is like a kid in a diamond shop or something like that is the expression. He is stuffing his pockets with diamonds everywhere. Every pocket is suitcase. He throws out his clothes. He packs it with diamonds, everything. He's so excited. At some point, he cannot stuff more diamonds into his, there's no, there's no place to hold the diamonds anymore. He decides that he's hungry. He goes to the restaurant. They have a kosher restaurant on the Diamond Island. Who would have thought? Kosher restaurant. He Rest goes. Absolutely. <laughs> well, no, as, as the story will play out. So he goes to this restaurant. And he now, for the first time in his life, he feels like a king. He can, he can now order from a menu in a restaurant without any hesitation. He's so happy. He says to the waiter, the waiter says, what can I get you? He's like, everything. Like, what? He's like, give me everything. You know, now, don't give me a full plate. Give me, give me a taste of everything. Right? Um, just the wine, the starters, the mains, everything, the whole, the whole shebang. All right, so he's served for two hours the bringing out. It's like a tasting menu. You ever been to those tasting things, like 12-course tasting? I haven't, but I've heard about them. It's a, apparently, it's a whole thing. So anyway, 10, 12 courses, they're bringing it out. It's a, then they come with a bill, and it's a massive bill. He's undeterred by the bill. Usually his eyes would just pop out of his sockets. But here he pulls out a nice sized stone, plocks it down. And you know they have the little thing that opens up, the little padded. I don't know why it has to be padded. Does it get thrown around so much? Who knows? Anyway, you ever wonder that? So they put, he, put, he puts a, a big stone on it. He says to the waiter with a smile, keep the change. <laughs> keep the change. The guy, the guy looks at him and says, the waiter looks at him and says, what are you doing? Like, what, what, what is this? He's like, it's a diamond. He's like, no, I know what it is, but why did you put it here? Said, to pay for the meal. He's like, that doesn't work. He says, what do you mean it does? It's a diamond. It's valuable. It's not valuable here. He's like, let me guess, you got that outside, right? And he realizes, of course it's not valuable. It's everywhere. How could that possibly be valuable? And suddenly, you ever have that moment where you realize like your whole narrative just comes crashing down? He's like, and he takes that deep breath like, uh-oh, like that's all he has, literally all he has. Even his clothes are somewhere out on the beach over there. He has nothing. And, um, and he says, well, what is the currency here? And they say, yeah, he doesn't have, <laughs> yes, right. Um, so, he put, so he says, well, hold on, if di so diamonds are not uh, the currency, diamonds are not valuable, so what is valuable here? And they tell him what's valuable here, what's valuable here is dead fish. Dead fish. 
That's it. Dead fish is valuable. Dead fish. And by the way, family with old money, you can smell it. <laughs> anyway, so he says, dead fish. He says, dead fish, that's the currency. So I have no dead fish. What do I do? Come to the kitchen. You're going to be working here for a while. He works off his debt for the meal. He decides he's in a new place. He's in a new country. He's in a new island. He doesn't want to be unsuccessful again. He decides he's going to work hard. You know, he can reinvent himself here. You know, he had a mishap. He had a misstep day one. But he can turn this around and he'll become successful. He goes from the kitchen in the restaurant to working in the restaurant. Eventually he... Uh, I don't know, he starts wheeling and dealing, he meets contacts, and he opens up a business, becomes successful, and after about a year, he is making a lot of dead fish. He's got a lot of dead fish. Yeah, he's, he's doing well for himself. He's finally made it. After two years, he is like a baron of dead fish. It's unbelievable. He, is, he's, he feels very comfortable. And he decides after two years, it's time to go home. He packs up a boat yeah, on, the sh- on a ship. He hires his own ship. He hires his own captain. Ahoy, matey. He, has, he puts the fish, the dead fish on the boat. And he, has, he sends a message, sends a telegram or whatever, a letter to his wife. Meet me on such and such date. Bring the kids to the dock. I'm coming in. I made it. Super wealthy. You know, tell the kids dad is coming home. They wait for him. As the ship gets closer, it smells really bad. They're like, what is this? What is, why, why is it getting really smelly over here? You know, other family and friends were, were also there to greet him because they heard the rumor. The whole community almost came out. But one by one, everyone leaves because they can't stand the stench. Eventually, they send a message to just dock the boat in the middle, and they'll figure out a way to send them another rope. Hey, the husband comes. He smells the wife says, welcome home. What is happening here? What is the smell? He's like, honey, I've made it. I've, I'm fabulously wealthy. We have so much dead fish on the ship. You'll be so proud of me. I made it. And she says to him, what are you talking about? I thought you went to Diamond Island. He's like, yeah, but on Diamond Island, diamonds are not valuable. It's dead fish that's valuable. And so I brought all the, I made so much dead fish and I brought it home. And she says, I don't know what she says. <laughs> I'm getting it. <laughs> she says to him, are you crazy? What happened? And at, at this point, he realizes, he, his, once again, everything, his whole world is rocked, and he realizes that he had dropped the diamond. He dropped the ball. He totally got turned around in this whole experience. Good news is, good news is, since it was Diamond Island, there were so many diamonds around. There were some in the cuffs of his pants, uh, in his pockets, in his suitcase from the beginning that never got fully. You know when you have that little compartment, that little zipper, and within the thing, and like three years later, like, oh, that's where that thing was. I had no idea. Right at the next trip. So thank God he found a few diamonds, and they lived happily ever after. This is brought in Jewish mystical thought as a parable for the experience of the soul here on earth. The soul is sent to this world to collect diamonds. What are diamonds? Diamonds are mitzvot, good deeds. Because there's tremendous potential here in this world. When the, when the soul arrives here though, and the soul says, let's collect diamonds, everyone around the soul says, diamonds? 
dead fish. We call that paper. <laughs> Money, right? <laughs> so, no, no, no. What's important here is dead fish. And the soul says, oh, really? Dead fish? That's what's important? Yeah, 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 yeah. Diamonds? Diamonds are, pff, diamonds are so last year. Dead fish is what's really, it's what's really important. And the soul hopefully can withstand the pressure of the dead fish market and remain committed to collecting diamonds. And then and our faith tells us that no matter what, no matter how much the soul was turned around, was convinced to pursue dead fish as opposed to diamonds, no soul returns home without, without what well, also, but without some diamonds somehow, because you can't go through this lifetime without good deeds, right? At some point, everyone somehow did something positive, if not many, of course, many things positive. But the reason why I share this parable, which is a powerful in and of itself, is to speak to the resilience of the soul or the, the purpose of resilience of the soul. In other words, the soul is sent here below to, no worries, the soul is sent here below to withstand the pressure of the body, to withstand the pressure of the world around it that tells it that it is crazy. In other words, to use modern psychological terminology, the soul is gaslit. You know that term gaslighting? Right? The soul is told, oh, that's what you're here for? That's ridiculous. Why would you want that? What you think is valuable? You're crazy. This is really valuable. The soul is being told that, what, that its compass is skewed when really that's the skewed compass. And so the first understanding in Kabbalah of why God takes a pure soul and sends it below is to instill, is to create space or create an opportunity for the soul to become stronger and gain resilience. Above, without any challenges, in a space where there's only truth and there's only light, to be plugged into truth and light is easy and it's not an accomplishment. But to remain or to find light and purpose and meaning here in this world amidst all of the other opposition, that requires, that requires strength. So that brings out the strength of the soul. So answer number one, why does the soul come down below? Number one, to become stronger, to become more resilient. Does that make sense? Okay, that's answer number one. Answer number two. Answer number two for why the soul comes down below. Again, re reset the question. Why would God take a pure piece of his essence and send it below in, 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 in a difficult... Who puts someone they love, who puts something that is so dear to them in such a difficult situation? Who does that? That's, that's horrible. Why would you harm something you love? Why would you put something that you love in a, in, a, in a terribly difficult position? So again, one answer was strength and resilience. The second answer is the soul is sent below not for its own sake, not for its own benefit. It has nothing to do with the soul. The soul is sent here on a mission to accomplish something and to achieve something that is necessary that, it, that only it can accomplish. And what is that? And what is that that only it can accomplish? Making the world a brighter place and making the body, its host, as it were, the soul's host, into more of a mensch. You know what a mensch is? A mensch is 
a refined good, right? A, 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 a good person. So again, this understanding is radically different than the first. The first understanding is that the soul is sent below for its own benefit. Right? It becomes stronger, it becomes more resilient, right? it becomes tougher in the process, so ultimately it benefits the soul. In the language of Kabbalah, it's a yurida letzorech aliyah. It's a descent in order for a greater ascent. How can it be greater than before? Because now it's stronger than before. Because a, a, a warrior untested is weaker than a warrior tested who's, who's, uh, who, who's um, emerged from battle uh, you know, intact. So that is the first idea. The second idea, the second answer, the second understanding of the purpose of the soul's descent is that it has nothing to do with the soul. The soul is not sent here for its own benefit. On the contrary, it's to, it might be to its own detriment. The soul is sent here for one purpose, to help out something else, to, to transform something around it, to, to better, to improve, to brighten, the world, to make the world a better place, to make the body more of a refined vehicle. That's why the soul is here. Not for its own benefit. In other words, if it was about itself, it would stay up in heaven. God sent the soul into enemy territory in order to flip the enemy into an ally. That's the idea. Secret ops. We're all secret agents. Yeah. On the first answer that you said, it's... uh... So if the soul is part of God that comes down to earth, then it means that Hashem, to start with, needed refining. He can become stronger and go back. I mean, yeah, isn't yeah. Hashem already complete? So when we say that a soul is a piece of God, that we still have to... Sum- There's no way that the human mind could understand these, the subtleties of what that means. A piece of God, but not God. The soul is definitely not God. Right? We, we want to be very clear here. When we talk about the soul being a piece of God, the language is a piece of God, which means uh, whatever that means. Again, we can't imagine it in, in physical terms of like slicing off a chunk of something, which then reduces the original. A reflection. Of but maybe a reflection, or maybe like you light from one candle, you light another candle, but the original remains intact. But somehow, certainly the soul is its own entity, but it's also a piece of God. So, but yes, the, the, the idea here is that, the, that God is sending something very close, very dear, um, into a hostile space. And the first answer, the first approach is to say that why does God do this? If God loves the soul. If God loves, it's like imagine sending a child into, into a very difficult physical space. It's like, why would you do it? You love your child? Why would you put your child into... Um, into a very antagonistic space. I'm not recommending that anybody do this, but God sends the soul here, and the first answer is to become strong in the process, to resist, and through the resistance to become stronger. Why does it have to if it's already up in perfect heaven? Why is it perfect? Okay, but it's perfect, but it's untested. So something tested is stronger than something untested. Something challenged, like any any case. Why do you give a, why do you give um, um, any test or a riddle or something to someone else or to a child to see how well they understand? Those from the opposition, you can understand it, it when 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 there's pushback and there's overcoming that brings out a greater strength. It's like any challenge in life brings out a greater strength. But didn't he send the souls for us to do the mitzvahs to create a place of a place for him? 
So that's the, sec that's the second reason. Good, that's the second reason. We have two different, both can coexist, by the way. But there's two, there's two ideas here. Idea number one, it strengthens the soul. Idea number two, it brightens the spaces outside the soul, as it were. Adam, did you have a question? Yeah, um, what battles are you preparing us for? What battles is he preparing us for? In other words, you're saying what strength is being, what will this strength then be utilized for? Yeah, like what's the, what's the I don't know that there's a good question, very good question. I don't know that there's any subsequent challenge. The challenge is here, the darkness is here, the opposition is here. And, and, and I'm, I'm trying to use terms that are vague enough to apply to each of us in our own lives and our own challenges and struggles. But I, I don't want it to sound uh, also like totally out of touch. At the end of the day, we're all struggling with, you know, right and wrong and, and, and positivity and negativity, light and darkness. We all struggle with these, with these dynamics. And the idea here is that the soul is sent into this space to be faced with opposition and faced with fierce opposition. It's like the guy on Diamond Island who's being told that his whole calculus of what's valuable is wrong. We're, we're told constantly that, that there are other values that supersede what are the true spiritual values, right? Our culture, and this is not, you know, our, we live in a great country, but at the end of the day, the, 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 the society around us has a whole, a whole list of other values that it, it, it might rank higher than what our true spiritual values are. And, and, and the soul faces that type of contention, that, that type of, of conflict. And for the soul to feel that and to reject that and to move past that and to move into a space or to maintain its integrity, that, that, that really calls upon a greater strength of the soul than the soul can activate without being tested. At the end of the day, you have a certain power in your hand, but without resistance, you can never elicit that. Does that make sense? You can lift, right, X amount of weight, but unless that weight is put on your hand, you won't be able to, 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 to summon that power in your hand. You can't summon that without resistance. You just can't. If there's no resistance, you can't utilize, you can't generate that force in your arm that you would when there is resistance. So the soul is powerful, but power untested is latent power. It's power that's, that's, uh, that's dormant. It's, 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 un, it's, un, uh, it's unsummoned power. When you put the resistance and the soul has to fight through it, now the soul is stronger. What's, what happens next? I don't know. I mean, I have an idea based on the teachings what happens next. I don't know if that strength is utilized, but the strength is summoned and thus the soul becomes stronger. All of that though, to your, to your point, is back to the first, first idea. The second idea has a radically different approach. They both can coincide as well. Um, but the second approach is radically different. It says that the soul is not here for its own benefit. Forget about the soul. It is being sent. It's an operative being sent on a mission to transform the space around it. Its goal is to transform its immediate vicinity, the body, as well as the world around it. And that's why the soul is sent here, to be a, to be a light, to be a transformative um, um, energy and a force of goodness and positivity and blessing in this world. So it's not about the strength of the, it's not about the soul becomes stronger with the struggles it has to summon. A, that might be true, that might not be true. It's really not about itself. 
So the question is, why would God take a soul, a beautiful soul, and put it into such an ugly place? To make it more beautiful. To make the because if you're if you are a point of light, then where else should we send you? We should send you into a place of darkness to illuminate. Right? That's the whole point. You know when when God tells Abraham to go out, um, to go outside at night. He says, Look at the stars. God tells Abraham, look at the stars. So will be your descendants. Like the stars. And everyone has the same understanding. Everyone says, what's the message? As numerous as the stars, just as there are many stars, your descendants, Abraham, will be many. The deeper understanding is, just like stars illuminate even against the dark backdrop, even in the darkness of night, the stars illuminate, the message is that Abraham's descendants will illuminate even in, dark, even in darkness. But that's really the purpose of all souls, is against the backdrop, against the pitch black of, of, of night backdrop, to illuminate and shine and, 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 and brighten the environs. That's the whole purpose of the soul. So that's the second reason. And that ties into the idea of making a home. Specifically, I will multiply. So, I, I mean, I love what you're saying, but there is a particular <laughs> sentence that says numerous. But harbei also can be magnify. It's quantitative, but it also could be... Uh, one second. Also, even when it comes to light, right? We also measure, measure light in numbers. 40 watts, 60 watts, 100 watts, right? What about lumens? Lumens, even better, right? Lumens, good. Lumens. I like that. Because <laughs> now 60 watts is only 8 watts. I, right, in LED, right? No, I, I, I am absolutely well, with you. still got 1,200 lumens. Oh, right. Look at the, One second. Look at the lumens. you got daylight and bright white well, and that's real white absolute, and soft white. Absolutely. That's, the, that's temperature of the light. Try changing. But Harbei could mean also wattage. Right? Your descendants will be bright. Anyway, the point is, Light will be multiplied. Oh, yeah. So here's the point. The point is that every soul is sent on a mission from God to work with, first and foremost, oneself. By the way, it's easier to work on someone else. It's always easier to work on someone else. It's easier to find their flaws and to find solutions for their flaws. It's like, I see what's wrong with you, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to do to fix it. That's easy. The harder thing is to work internally because our own stuff, we're like, nah, it's not so bad. Uh, I'll work on it tomorrow. Uh, it makes me endearing, <laughs> right? We all, we have excuses. <laughs> I've used that one. <laughs> <laughs> this is why people like me. So we use, we have all sorts of excuses to why we don't do the work inside. But when it comes to the other person, oh, we have, all, we have, we have, a, we have a, a list of things that they need to work on, right? And which order they should put the stuff in first. Right, we, have, we can figure all that stuff out. It's always harder to work inside. So Kabbalah says that the soul is put into a body. And its first task is to work on the body, to make the body more of a mensch, to make the body more of a, um, I don't know, of a, instead of a, you know, there's a verse. I forget where the verse is. Adam, uh, per, um, per, uh, para, Adam, Yivaleit. No, I don't know. I'm, uh, uh, it, so, something along the lines of man is born 
a wild donkey. So Verse. why are we born at bar mitzvah age? So we can get right to work. Why do we have to waste All right. over 13 years developing? We're, we're, we're getting a running start. Look, the, the idea in, in Kabbalah is that the body first solidifies and then the, 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 the godly soul becomes more and more integrated and then its, it's, its goal is to, is to refine the space. But we are born with natural, materialistic, narcissistic, you know, not clinically narcissistic, but, but, but selfish tendencies. At the end of the day, I've used this example many times before, a child wakes up in the middle of the night and cries at 3 a.m. because it's hungry. The baby cries. Baby, no baby ever said to itself, one second, my mother's very tired, right? My mother is super tired. She's been up with me for so many nights in a row. You know what? Let me give her another hour. Wait an hour. Doesn't happen. You're hungry, you cry. We get older, we do the same thing. We just mask it because it's not socially, you know, it's uncouth, right? It's like, it's not socially um, accepted to, to cry if you're hungry. But we... What's my point? My point is the body is, uh, is, an untamed, is an untamed beast. And the goal of the soul, again, to each... It's interesting, Kabbalah speaks about, you know, like the sacrifices. In biblical times, there were different animals that could be brought. There was a, a bull, an ox, a sheep, a goat, different types of animals. And so Kabbalah says that these different types of animals refer to different types of animal spirits inside. Some people are like a raging bull, like very... Some are more like like a sheep, a little bit more docile. Like Some are, the, like the horoscope, like the like, eh, not necessarily like the the Pisces or the yeah. you know yeah Aquarius, Taurus, and but the point is that um, that the souls uh, the souls first job is to work on the body and then to work on on the environment around it. So these are two these are two approaches. What's the difference between these two approaches? Aside from how we feel about them emotionally, like, do I like the fact that my soul is here to struggle and become strong in the process? Do I like the fact that I'm sent on a light, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a light carrier, I'm here to light up the world? Maybe the second one feels more empowering than the first, as opposed to like, I'm here to suffer almost and then to overcome. I'm here to, to bring light and that makes it more, you know, it makes it more, uh, uh, it makes it more exciting. You know, aside from the emotional reaction, the, the, the major distinction between these two approaches is as, as to how the soul views its job. Is the soul, is the soul trying to push away the, um, trying to push away the opposition and get through it? Or is the soul working with the opposition to flip it? Does that make sense? In the first understanding, the soul's vision is, this is my resistance. I need to work against it. I need to push away from it. I need to get out of it into that space of light. I need to work through it. I need to like run through the, the, the defense, the block. I need to run through into, into a space of openness where I'm in the clear of, of all this craziness. So I'm trying to kind of escape the challenge. That is according to the first approach. In the second approach, you're not trying to escape the darkness. You're trying to flip the darkness. In other words, the difference between the first approach and the second approach is, is the goal resilience or is the goal transformation? Is the goal survival or is the goal creating allies? Survival is about self and trying to get away from the stuff around you. The second, the second dynamic is about creating allies and transformation. In other words, 
Is my goal or is my perspective on life one in which I feel the negativity, I feel the opposition, and I try to block it out and I say, stop bothering me, stop harassing me with your intruding thoughts, I'm going to focus on what I need to do, and, and you try to shove away the opposition, that's, that's methodology number one, or is, or, do we, or, is the, or is the intentionality methodology number two, where I take a moment and tell myself I'm going to work on those inner voices to try to create allies, to try to transform them into the positive. In the language of Kabbalah, now we're going to flip into Kabbalistic language. Is the goal to be a Bainani or is the goal to be a Tzaddik? Let me define these terms. We defined them before, but let me reset, let me reset the table. Is a Bainani is someone who feels the negativity and still does the right thing. A Tzaddik is someone who's so refined that they only feel positivity. Is the goal to feel the negativity and to still emerge you know, from that space of negativity and emerge into a po- and, and, and remain focused on positive and despite the negativity? Or is the goal to transform the negative into a positive and thus become aligned within and without? You see, the first approach is the approach of the Bainani. It's the survival approach. It's I have all of these distracting thoughts, all of these temptations, desires, all of these vices, all of this negativity. Still, I'm going to say, I'm going to think, say, and do the right thing despite all of that. Which means I'm feeling the pressure, I'm feeling the negativity, I'm going to push through and emerge the other side on the outside um, in, in a positive way. I'm going to smile and say the right thing and do the right thing despite all the demons that lurk, with, that lurk within. And in that process, I'm going, to become, I'm going to become stronger. Why? Because I was able to push through the opposition. That is all of that is, the, is idea number one that we spoke about today. Idea number two is radically different. My goal is not simply to push through despite the opposition. My goal is to make myself less opposed to doing the right thing. My goal is to make myself more on board with goodness and less at struggle with goodness. Does that make sense? My goal is, no? My goal is that the next time I have a choice between doing the right thing or doing the opposite of the right thing, I I should be naturally more inclined to do the right thing because I've transformed something about myself. There should be less, should be less of a struggle. Why? Because I've been working on myself to improve my own character, to improve myself so that there's less opposition. Why do the bad thing in the first place? Why do the bad thing? Yeah, yeah. Why, why? Because we have a body that God has put as a foil to what the soul wants. Because God puts the soul into a space that says, pursue dead fish and forget about diamonds. So that we have. But the question is, do we neglect the work of dealing with the opposition and just try to push through? That's approach number one. Resilience and strength, pushing through the opposition. So the opposition remains as strong as it ever was, but we're pushing through. We're white-knuckling it until we get to the other side, right? That's approach number one. Approach number two is, I'm here to transform myself and the space around me. I'm here to educate myself, my body, as to the value of diamonds over dead fish. So the next time I have a choice, diamonds or dead fish, inside, in my inside, I'll be like, you know what? I actually like diamonds. This is, this is what it means. So you're describing an individual 
that is not sure of what he wants? We are all conflicted because we have two parts of us that want different things. It's not that we don't know what we want. Who's we? Who's I? No, no, no. I'm asking another question. When you say I, right? When I say I, which I am I speaking about? My soul or my body? I have both. Who's the I? When I say I want, who's the I that wants? Am I talking about my godly soul or my physical body? Because I have both of those. So my godly soul wants one thing. My physical body wants something else. Right? On Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, just to go back to that, that example, what do I want? Do I want to eat or I want to pray? What do I want to do? What do I want to do? Well, you, you want to pray. So oh, thank you. So the point is we are at conflict internally because we have two different realities. There's two different operating systems how within. About, how about the perspective that you are a soul, but you have a body? That's so a great perspective. are really just you. That's a great perspective. Number one, not everyone has that. Many people feel that they are a body with maybe a soul. Maybe. Right? And even someone who says, no, I think I'm a soul with a body, is still going to be, is be confronted with the, uh, the desires of the body. So here's the point. I don't think... Can I ask a question? Sure. So trying to think of an example. If you're confronted with, you know, oh, gosh, I want this, but I know it's not the right thing to do. Right. So I'm not going to take it. Right. Who's doing, the soul is telling me not to take it? Yes. Okay. And then my mind is choosing, right? So I, I the choice comes in. I have the, my mind is able to choose, has the ability to decide, to, to kind of um, go through these two, uh, these two parts of myself and to make a determination. And so the soul is transforming. Oh, so, it, but in that, in that moment, if I tell myself I'm not going to do it, the question is, is, is there anything being transformed in that moment? Or am I just resisting the temptation? Resisting temptation, all of that is the first, point, the first picture that I painted, mm-hmm. where the soul comes down below, and its goal is resistance. Okay. Right? It's being pressured, it's being pulled in a different direction, and it's swimming against the current, because right? the body is saying, try this, do that, say the other, think this, and I'm pushing against it, Right, using my, my divine soul, pushing against it to, to reject it. All of that is number one. The second picture, which you liked better, right? I remember you liked, you liked, you liked the second one better. That is to illuminate the environment around us. So what does that mean in this context? It means that little by little, not all at once, but little by little, I meditate, I work on myself, I, I train, I practice, I study, whatever, whatever that looks like inside, to get to a place where I want more and more to do the divine thing. I want less and less to do the other stuff. In other words, are there areas in our lives, that's a simple question, are there areas in our lives in which we are not at all tempted to do the negative thing? In other words, I'm not going to get specific here, but can we think of in our own minds something that is done right? A horrific crime, whatever, God forbid, that we would never dream of doing. 
of course, right? Of course, we're not even tempted in those areas. There are areas in which we are tempted. Whatever, big or small they are. Can we move the needle in one more place, in one more area of our lives, to get to a, an internal space where that where we don't even want that anymore, where it's no longer a question of will we resist and make it through, but we don't even have the challenge anymore. Can we get to, can we add one more item, one more area to the list of things that we would never dream of doing? Can we add one more? Kabbalah believes that we can. Now, are we going to add everything to that list? Are we going to, are we going to, be champions of every air of every vice in our lives to the point that it's no longer a challenge. Realistically, no. That's someone who, as you know, we we call a tzaddik. A tzaddik is someone who, to, on, on every level, is no longer challenged with this stuff. But the question is, someone who is challenged, can they move one more item? Because it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Can they move one more item to the tzaddik category where they are a tzaddik in that category? Again, what, what is a tzaddik? A tzaddik is someone. Tzaddik literally means righteous. Tzaddik is, in this definition, a situation where you're not even tempted for the negative. There's no, right, in a good way, there's no choice. Yeah. It's all, you only want to do the positive thing. Right? You would never dream of the opposite. It's not like you're struggling with yourself. It's not like there's an internal battle and you're somehow you know, overcoming the temptation. There's no temptation here. We all have areas in which we are at tzaddik. I don't think there's anyone that wants every vice out there in the world. I mean, if you find someone like that, wow, kalakavod. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's intense, right? Everyone has areas in which they're not even dreaming of that. Great. Question is, can we get ourselves to one more? Now, here's the, here's the idea. The concept or the notion that the soul is here to affect positively its environment literally means this. It means to transform the body, to transform the and by virtue of that, by, uh, transform the environment around it into a space where it, one area at a time, it no longer wants that. The body has lost its drive for that. Like, do I need that? I don't need that. Do I want it? Nah, I'm over it. Eh, it's not good for me anyway. Not interested. Can we get one more item into the tzaddik category? Are we going to be a tzaddik in totality? Are we going to have no more vices? Probably not. But can we get one more cat? Can we get one more item added to the tzaddik category? We can. Now this explains this incredible teaching from the Talmud. The Talmud is not a work of Jewish mysticism, but the Talmud has a lot of mystical ideas uh, to share. So please grab one of these. It's a uh, it's a few paragraphs from the Talmud tractate Nida. I'm going to put this up on the screen as well. And it begins with, um, it's a section called The Oath. All right, here we go. Let's sharing screen. Okay, does everyone have a copy? You guys are good? All right, here we go. Yeah, sure. The first part you said is that the neshama or the soul comes here and it's working on its struggle so it can become soul. Yes. The second one was to come here and to flip. Right. Correct. But it seems to me, and I might not understand you correctly, that what the tzaddik is actually doing is refining his soul to a level that he doesn't have to struggle anymore. Correct. He's strengthening his own neshama, his sure. own soul. 
Sure. Isn't it the same like what the other one is doing? It's just not that successful. So he stays at Benoni and he does not stay at Zadik. Right. Zadik is more successful. Correct. Times annihilate the actual correct. Struggle, but he works on his soul. Absolutely. So he's Absolutely. Not doing light and to bring you know light to here. He's doing. He becomes a Zadik. Absolutely. But there's two ways of understanding it. One is with, with the struggle. One is that I'm feeling the resistance, and despite the resistance, I'm still doing the right thing. The other one is I've reduced the resistance. In other words, I'm taking, I'm no, there's no longer an enemy. I've transformed the enemy into an ally. And so there's no longer, so at, you're right, to get to that place was a struggle. But from this place forward, there's no longer resistance. I'm no longer doing heavy lifting. I don't want to do it anymore. You understand what I'm saying? I'm no longer lifting uh, 300 pounds. There's no, there's no monkey on my back anymore in this area. The tzaddik is not fighting against any resistance. Now, you're saying to get there he had to or she had to? Absolutely. But the point is from this point on, there's no longer resistance. Why? Because it's been transformed. So the tzaddik, the role of a tzaddik is light maker. The role of Benini is warrior. Two different, two different modalities. The same person could be doing both. And a tzaddik is also a warrior. How did he get it? How did he get there? By, by fighting, by struggling. You're right. But there's still two, if subtly, there's still two different modalities. Now let's take a look at this Talmudic piece. Um, this Talmudic piece describes what happens before birth. Rabbi Simlai delivered the following discourse. What does an embryo resemble when it is in the bowels of its mother? Folded writing tablets. I know what you're thinking. What? <laughs> what are folded writing tablets? I get. <laughs> and why so. you know, before you get to that, the, the embryo is not in the bowels of its mother. Well, he means it's, it's not. It's not. It's not literally bowels. It means in the inside. No, it's, it doesn't really mean. No. I don't know. I think I it's know some people that came from the bowels. It's it's a translation. One second. It's a translation, but it's not. A, it's not a literal. Uh, it's not literally what it says. Now, folded writing tablets. So, what does it mean folding writing tablets? So, we don't have writing tablets today that are folded. This was an ancient uh, or or like an older thing. But somehow tablets that were folded into itself, and it was the embryo, the, the fetus is folded. Its hands rest on its two temples respectively, its two elbows on its two legs, and its two heels against its buttocks. Its head lies between its knees, its mouth, hence the fetal position, right? Its mouth is closed and its navel is open, and it eats what its mother eats and drinks what its mother drinks, but produces no excrement because otherwise it might kill its mother. As soon, however, as it sees the light, the closed organ opens, and the open one closes, for if that had not happened, the embryo could not live even one single hour. A light burns above its head, and it looks and sees from one end of the world to the other. As it is said, then his, light sh then his lamp shined above my head, and by his light I walked through the darkness. And do not be astonished for, at this, for a person sleeping here might see a dream in Spain. So just like when we dream, we might have a vision of what's happening in another country. So the embryo in this pre-birth state has a vision, the prophetic vision can see things beyond its immediate environment. And there is no time in which a man enjoys greater happiness than in those days. For it is said, Oh, that I were as the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me. Now, which are the days that make up months and do not make up years? The months of pregnancy, of course. Okay, so basically, 
It's downhill from there, from birth. It was great. All right. It is also taught, sorry, it. He's wrong with the hands on the temple. One second. It is also taught that, uh, sorry, it is also taught all the Torah from beginning to end. As soon as it sees the light, an angel approaches, slaps it on its mouth, and causes it to forget all the Torah completely. As it is said, sin crouches at the door. So basically, when the fetus, when the child is born, an angel taps it on its mouth. The legend is that that's the, right? That's the thing. My mustache gets in the way. Whatever. That's that thing over there. And, um, and it forgets all of the Torah. The idea here is that the soul is, the, the fetus, the soul is granted um, a clarity of purpose. But then... Forgets. Why? Why be granted clarity of purpose and then forget? Clarity of purpose is good because then you have it inherent. Even if you have to re- relearn it, it's like a song that resonates because you heard it once before. It's like a familiar, familiar tune. So when you study Torah, when you study spirituality, meaningful spirituality, and it's like it resonates, the reason why it resonates is because you learned it even before you were born. Why is it made to forget? Because otherwise it would be too, life would be too easy. It wouldn't be a challenge. There wouldn't be resistance. Angels like <laughs> Not like literally, like <laughs> Mike Tyson. <laughs> right. Anyway, so that's what it says. It does not emerge from there. This is the key paragraph. All of that is the intro. This is the key. It does not emerge from there, i.e., from uh, uh, from the from the womb before it is made to take an oath. What is the nature of the oath that is made to take? Here's the oath. Promise, the soul is told, be righteous. And be not wicked. And even if the entire world says that you are righteous, you should still consider yourself wicked. Huh. Look at that. So it says, be righteous, be a tzaddik. Don't be wicked, don't be a rasha. And even if the entire world says that you're righteous, you should still consider yourself wicked. All right, a lot of questions here. Um, Be righteous, great. And why does it say then not be wicked? If you're told to be righteous, then obviously you're not going to be wicked. Understand? Why do you need both sides of the oath? The promise to be righteous, yes. Not to be wicked, bro, that's included in the promise to be righteous. I already got that covered. Like, why are you repeating yourself? Maybe he has to explain what being righteous is. Okay, you could say that. You could say that. I hear you. We just want to cross cross all the T's and dot all the I's, right? Don't think it means this, because it doesn't mean that, right? So, So maybe it's just specifying it. But it seems a little weird. And then it says, even if the whole world says that you're a tzaddik, you're righteous, you should still consider yourself wicked. I mean, I guess I, I know we shouldn't, you know, uh, uh, become too arrogant. But man, to think of yourself as wicked, ugh, it's a little, it's a little self-deprecating. Hey, to to not go around thinking that you're God's gift to humanity is a good thing. But to consider yourself wicked, I, I'm not going to get to the second question. But I want to get to the first question. What does it mean to be righteous and not be wicked? The way the author Rebbe Tanya explains it is unbelievable. He says the following. Oh, I'm sorry. Online, I didn't scroll. Sorry, guys. All right. There it is. <laughs> there is the rest of the quote. Um, okay. Sorry. Um, so here's the thing. The, the, the author Rebbe Tanya says the following. He says, that what does it mean to be righteous and not be wicked? It seems to be redundant or unnecessary. Be righteous means be at tzaddik. But if you find yourself that you can't be a tzaddik, I'm not a tzaddik, I'm not perfect, at least don't be wicked. Rather, be a benini. That's the message. Be righteous. Ideally, be righteous. Which means, in our conversation today, flip the opposition. 
Work on yourself to put things more in the tzaddik bucket. I'm not even looking for that anymore. I'm not even running after that anymore. I, I, I've lost my, I'm not, I'm not all fabrent, I'm not, that means uh, fire, I'm not all passionate for that. That's, I don't need it. I don't need it. Work on that. But if you can't be a tzaddik, at least, oath number two, second part of the oath, or part B is, at least don't be wicked. At least don't give in to the temptation. If you can't slay the dragon, if you can't flip the opposition, at least don't join the dark side. Resist it. This point one and two of this oath is the opposite. Well, it's the same thing, but it's the, it's the opposite number of what we said before. Point one is point two, and point two is point one that I mentioned before. Remember, there's two rationales, two understandings of why the soul comes below. Number one, to be a warrior, to resist, to gain strength, to feel the opposition and to cut away and to push away the opposition, to swim against the current and to maintain one's integrity despite the fierce challenges that come our way. What is that? That's living the bane in the life. That means that you have all of these, all of these temptations from without and within. And, and you steal yourself, S-T-E-E-L. You know, people who steal themselves, you know what they're called? Stealers. Okay. I'm from Pittsburgh. Football reference. Anyway, so you steal yourself, you strengthen yourself to remain strong and defiant despite the temptation. That's what it means to be a bainani. But you know what the oath is? The first part of the oath? The first thing the soul is told? Don't settle for that. Shoot for the tzaddik. Shoot for the stars. Be righteous. Be righteous means not to not be wicked. That's the second half of the oath. The first half of the oath, be righteous, means try to work on yourself to transform the temptations inside, to try to transform your environment, to make your environment into a holistic space that is congruent with your spiritual aspirations. Transform your home into a place that is conducive to your spiritual values so that you're not fighting against the current in your own home. Does that make sense? And that's what it means to be righteous. Are we going to be at tzaddik in every area? Are we, are we never going to face the challenge anymore? Of course not. I.e., of course, we're going to face challenges. But can we create spaces, oases, spaces where the challenge is not so felt? I, we're not going to be a warrior once we've achieved that. Once we, to get there, we'll be, we'll be a battle. But once we've achieved that transformation, we're not going to be a warrior? True. True but we'll, be, we'll, we'll have had the opportunity to flip the opposition, to flip the negativity into positivity, which is ultimately a valuable objective for why the soul has come below. So in the final analysis, even as you know, throughout mystical literature, even as we've studied again and again, that our fate in life is to face challenge and to overcome, but you and I also need to know that not every part of life, not every challenge is insurmountable. There are certain challenges that can be transformed. There are certain vices, certain desires that can be not just overcome again and again and again, but can be lessened to the point where the challenge is not in my face every time. It's more 
subdued. And it becomes easier and easier. Is it going to be everywhere a wholesale change, a wholesale transformation? Am I going to reach the state in which there's never any negative desire within? Probably not. Can I reach a state in which the opposition feels less strong, or at least in this area feels less strong? The answer is yes. And so this explains the role of perfection and imperfection, as I wrote in, in this week's email. You know, there's one way of looking at it, embrace your imperfection. You're imperfect, embrace it, it's your struggle, it's your battle, that's what makes you strong. The fact that you're imperfect and have to fight against that, that makes you strong. Another way of looking at it is that the goal is to turn the imperfection into perfection, one space at a time. Maybe, Previously, we would have cut corners, you know, cut corners, cut, you know, a compromise on our values to, to make another deal. But now we're holding strong. Now it's not just we're resisting that temptation, but now we'd rather not have the deal that, that, that makes us compromise on our values. That's progress. Is it wholesale perfection? No, but one area at a time. And so this is the message that we'll leave off that we'll leave, that we'll, that we will conclude with today. The message that we have two roles in life. Number one, to feel the temptation, to push against it, to resist it, to be a warrior, and to grow through that process. That's very valuable. That's the bainani. And a second, a second purpose, not secondary, but a, a second way of understanding it, maybe even a primary purpose. That is to transform the darkness around us and within us into light so that the darkness is felt a little bit less. With that, we fulfill the vow that we took at the beginning, be it tzaddik. And if we can't do that, at least let's not be a Russia. Let's not be wicked, i.e. Let's, let's resist the temptation that is there. Thank you very much for joining me today for Kabbalah Cafe. I hope it made sense. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope perhaps it's given you uh, food for thought and, and even some inspiration. And I look forward to continuing next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Any questions or comments? Yeah, the haircut is startling me. <laughs> like Samson. Unlike yeah. Samson, I don't think I've lost my. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean to be facetious, but to me, this sounds like Catholicism teaches that. Which part? Nuns. And priests theoretically are supposed to get away from their temptations. Right. Um, in that respect, and mainly they thought Jesus was the main sadic. He, he Look, I, I think to, you know. I, I think I'm, so. I don't know enough about it. No, I'm with you, but I think the point here is that there's two major objectives. One is the overcoming, and one is the transforming. But neither requires one. Um, not, neither one requires necessarily, necessarily abstention. In other words, one can engage in an activity without any negativity around it, right? In an activity without negativity, and just in a positive space. But aren't theoretically, they're trying to avoid the negative. Yeah, the no, I understand that. But I'm saying it, it. It doesn't have to be one or the other, and one doesn't necessarily preclude the other. Pre, uh, preclude the other. Just a quick scheduling, some, uh, some quick scheduling notes.
Um, quick scheduling notes. So again, as I said, we are we are on for next week. We have a bunch of new. Th- we have a bunch of upcoming classes and opportunities coming up. We're doing a Hebrew reading course. We're doing a business ethics course. Speaking, of, I mentioned business ethics at the end of today's session. We're doing a new. Um, uh, what else are we doing? We're doing. So those are some new series that we're doing. We're also having a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she's uh, 95 years old. She's known as the Honey Girl of Auschwitz. She's 95 years old, coming from Arizona at the end of the month uh, to speak to the community. Wow. Yeah, yeah, we'll bring her out. 90, from 95. She comes with her daughter. She's she's incredible. She's, she's incredible. She's coming here. Yeah, Torah Center's bring her out. Um, we have a Shabbaton coming up at the end of the month with my brother-in-law, who is a chazan in South Africa. It's going to be a South African-themed Shabbat experience. We have other stuff happening, so stay tuned for the information. Emails will be going. Yeah, emails are going out this week. Any luck on the VR? What's the VR? Oh, for the temple? Yes. I wasn't able. Good question. Did I tell you about that? No. Oh, I, David. I, I oh. I mentioned that I would love to see it. And you said All right. Let me. Ex- yes. Yeah, so there is someone, an outfit in New York, who created virtual reality uh, software to replicate or to, to create a space where you're, you feel like you're in the temple, taking a tour of the Holy Temple yeah. uh, in Jerusalem. So I contacted them. Um, you know who works with them? David Rahmani actually works with that. Yeah, he, he's worked with them. Anyway, they require a, a certain uh, minimum of people. I was trying to get together the um, the camps, well, the, camp. the camps for the kids, and the and I wasn't able to put together the numbers that they need because they have to fly down with all the the how headsets. Many, how many do they, need? they want like at least 200, 300 people. So I it's it was I tried I called a few of them but anyway. It doesn't have to be Chabad. Doesn't have to be correct. It doesn't have to be. You're right. It doesn't have to be. You're right. Anyway, I haven't put it together yet, but it's still something I want to do. But it's not happening this week. Um, all right, stay tuned for more fun and excitement. And uh, blessings to everybody. Tisha B'Av is this week, so indeed um, it should be transformed into a... Um, nothing that I have in mind yet. It should be transformed into a day of rejoicing with the, with the Mashiach and the redemption. May peace be on our days, let us say, Amen. All right, great to see you guys. Dr. Maxi, Ellen, Lisa, Larry... Matt, how's Kansas, Matt? Good. I'm in West Palm. I'm in West Palm. Oh, nice. For work. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Matt, how is it? It's good. Oh, it's on next week. I'll be right with you. Stay here. Stargazing at a local nature preserve near me. Nice. Mount like a little tiny like the elevated space where we're having a NASA NASA astronomer come into that's awesome a telescope and let us see the stars. That's awesome. See, we spoke about stars today. Just to get you, just to get that meditation, right? Think about the stars shining despite what's going on, despite how dark it is. They're still shining. So I love it when you mentioned that because in my place I can see the night sky when there's a clear sky. I can see stars. I haven't. That's amazing. I, I still remember living in Brooklyn and then I went to a remote uh, island somewhere and this is back in the day. And I remember looking up and I'm like, what is this? Where, who, what? Like, where are these stars? It's incredible. Yeah, amazing. Tony, great to see you. Fran, great to see you. Cheryl, Mariana, great to see you. 
Amazing, amazing, amazing. Great to see everybody. Sending lots of love to everybody. Thank you for the beautiful class. Amazing. So inspiring. Thank you. And thank you, thank great. you. Thank, thank you, Mariana. You. My best to Alex and the kids. And it's great to see everyone. Thank you. And uh, please, God, only in good health and in blessings. All right. See you guys soon. Take care. Shavuot Tov. Bye, everybody. Record.